This episode of Probably Science is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code PROBABLYSCIENCE. Please welcome the hosts of the Probably Science podcast, Matt Kirschen and Andy Wood. Probably science. Thank you, Thank you guys. We're Thanks here. For coming, guys. I've... We're here at the Taxi Magic stage at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival, of course. Um, have you guys been uh, going to other shows this weekend, or is everyone here just for the excellent? Nice, nice. This is just Andy's one of the founders of the festival, so he's just using it for market research now. <laughs> this is. Want to see if there's overlap between science people and comedy fans in general? No, thanks. Thanks for coming, guys. I've never heard the theme tune that loud and booming before. It's a good song. It's good work. Well That's done, Jesse. Yeah. Um, uh, Jesse couldn't be here with us, our usual co-host Jesse Case, unfortunately, uh, for good reasons, good career reasons. Yeah, I think we mentioned it on the last podcast, I don't know how many of you are regular listeners of the show, or, or you just showed up because you thought it sounded kind of vaguely interesting, but we have a normal co-host who uh, auditioned for a pilot that we can't really talk about yet, apparently, because he's had to sign non-disclosure things, but he auditioned for a pilot uh, a few weeks ago, and regular listeners to the show will know that he mistakenly sprayed himself with two-week-old stale urine on the way into the recording. It's just a superstitious thing. It's just a superstitious <laughs> thing, or a mistake. For, it was in a Febreze bottle. It's a long story. But it's not really a long story. He'd pissed in a Febreze bottle on a long car journey and forgot that he'd done it. Was, yeah. And then needed to freshen up before he went into the audition and sprayed himself with old stale piss instead but now uh, that he booked the he booked the, the gig role. he booked the role he's booked so he's now, booked that role <laughs> so now he has to do that every time he auditions from now on yeah that's gonna be pull. his thing uh i wonder whether he's gonna turn up for the actual taping and they'll feel that something's missing he's not he's not the same jesse they knew uh, but he's, but I'm sh- what do you? Do? But it keeps deer away off your lawn. Or something? <laughs> it's going to be good for some reason. Or attracts deer. Who knows? I don't know which one it does. <laughs> I think I think he just had a, like an extra feral musk to him <laughs> on the way in, and they're like, that guy's got something. It was a dominant aspect to his performance. <laughs> that. Uh, I um. So I, we we should probably very quickly thank um. Uh, Squarespace, who are both the sponsors of Probably Science and one of the sponsors of the festival, one of the people who make this whole festival happen. Mm-hmm. And we're also, um, we're also on the Taxi Magic stage we're right now. On the Taxi Magic stage, yeah. If you guys want to uh, get, some, get some rides places this weekend safely, you should uh, download the Taxi Magic app, and there's a code BRIDGETOWN14 to get a $10 discount, I think. Uh, or for a $15 discount, use the code FUCKUBER. <laughs> a little, little secret. Burning some sponsor bridges. No more, <laughs> no more shot at Uber on the show. That's not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm curious how many of you guys saw our live show last year? Did anybody? Okay. okay. That was uh, well, this... still the most tense time of my life. Last year as well. I've, this is a lot of recapping that people regular listeners of the show will know, but last year our guests were Peter Serafinowicz, who is a comedian and comedy actor and writer who I think both of us are fans of and a great creator of comedic content, mm-hmm. and Gallagher who had some things to say about Mexicans. So, <laughs> so 
So that happened last year. We're playing it a bit safer this year. Yeah. With, um, yeah. Uh, it, it, those of you who listen know that sometimes we have guests from the world of comedy and we talk about current events in science with them. And sometimes we have guests from the world of science and talk about their areas of expertise. And this year we uh, were lucky enough to have both of those happening. So, so yeah, I'd like to bring out our comedy guest first. And this yeah. is someone um, I've known for a pretty long time. Um, I'm, I'm both a fan of and I'm now happy to say a friend of uh, the creator of uh, the Aristocrats movie. Uh, which I hope you've seen. If you haven't, what the fuck are you playing at? Uh, uh, the host of Comic Sony, basically the, f- the first guy on Comedy Central, effectively. He really was. He was the face of Comedy Central in its early uh, The lead of Northern Exposure, the guy behind Setlist, which is playing tonight. Setlist, if you've got a festival ticket, go and see Setlist. Also, go and see the content on Nerdist YouTube channel. Uh, please welcome to the stage the fantastic Mr. Paul Provenza. I'm going to sit next to Andy. I, I can't sit next to you because of the restraining order. <laughs> I'm sorry about but, what I that, did. Thank you for that beautiful intro. I should be so much fucking bigger. <laughs> <laughs> you should. Like, there's been, you've been involved in everything in comedy over the years, right? Like, I just can't hold a job. <laughs> How many of you seen the, have seen the movie The Aristocrats? This is... Uh, Director right here, Paul Provenza. Not to be confused with the Aristocats. Uh, also recommended. Very good movie. Different. Oh, that that has happened, though. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, blockbusters made that error more than once. <laughs> Putting the wrong disc in the wrong cover. Oh, <laughs> Hilarity ensues. Uh, it was actually a family. Uh, um, uh, somebody sent me this article from some, some town in Florida where this family actually went to the aristocrats with their kids, thinking it was the aristocats. And, of course, they got up and left about, like, 45 minutes in. <laughs> and I thought, that's some faith in Disney. Like, <laughs> like seriously, like, I'm telling you, the cats are going to start fucking singing any minute now. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's a true story, though. That, that, yeah. That's great. Um, also, comics only, which I... Um, there's, there's a little bits of footage knocking around on the internet, but yeah. it's very scarce. Yeah. That was- well, you know, anything that happened before the internet is just a rumor. <laughs> <laughs> it's just mystery. It doesn't, it's like the lost city of Atlantis. It might have existed. I think that might be one of the things we'll be talking about later with our, with our other guests. But, um, but yeah, you, that show had um, Dave Chappelle's first ever TV appearance. Uh, I, Sam Kinison's last TV appearance. That's right. That. I never thought of it that way. But yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, yeah, um, uh, a whole bunch of incredible people are on it. Uh, uh, Louis C.K. is all over it. Uh, Bill Hicks was on it a bunch of times. So I used to ask Bill to come and do it because I would say to him, please do everything on this show that they would never let you do on any other show. So he would go out of his way to come and do it. Um, that's great. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting, cool people. Andy Kindler, same material. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but I've been I've actually been slowly and laboriously digitizing all the shows oh, which great. I only have access to them on VHS which has been in a closet for 20 some odd years now so it's kind of shitty quality but there's some funny shit on it and and then you had some like some writers on the show as well who went on to amazing yeah Fred Wolf uh, T. Sean Shannon who was SNL for a long who time who was SNL for a while uh, Mike Armstrong who uh 
his his biggest claim to fame. He's written a lot of shit, but his biggest claim to fame was he wrote the Academy Award winning short uh, short film, The Appointments of Dennis Jennings, with Stephen Wright. Yeah. And uh, really hilarious guy, and uh, yeah, and it was just kind of a free for all. It was kind of a, a, it was it was both a comedy talk show and a parody of a comedy talk show at the same time. So there was all this backstage stuff, and and the whole premise was it, the the idea behind it was basically like, what if my favorite part of the Tonight Show was always the comedians? What if we cut everything else out and it was just the comedians coming and doing panel? And uh, uh, so people would make attempts at actually doing stand up, but then never be able to deliver it. <laughs> Like, I would come out and do, try to do an opening monologue on every show, and I would, I would flub it and go backstage, and there'd be a big glass booth that says, in case of comedy emergency, break glass, and they'd break it, and Steve Allen would come out. You know? <laughs> I mean, it was the most bizarre. It, we used to have Rip Taylor sitting in the Jello Bowl in the craft service table. Oh, my God. That's incredible. <laughs> It was just insane. It was really fun and goofy, and it was because nobody at Comedy Central really noticed <laughs> early, early Comedy Central was really fun. It was a lot of loose stuff. It yeah, was... we used to blow people's brains out all the time. We, we made a machine that, that would do the, we called it the Gut Blower 2000, that would just blow people's heads out <laughs> and just big spatters of hunks of meat and everything on the wall. And it was like a live action Warner Brothers cartoon. <laughs> you know, we'd, Fred would blow his brains out in the bathroom, which we would watch on security camera, and then he'd be sitting in the chair with like a little X band aid. <laughs> I took a couple of Nuprin, feel better That's than great. ever. And, and they would let this shit go through. It was unbelievable. But it turns out that the, uh, the producer on the show and, and myself both, um, we were in New York at one point, and we were at the Comedy Central offices when they were still Ha, and they had just merged to Comedy Central. It was and a Comedy moved, Channel and Ha. It was became... a Comedy Channel, which was HBO, and Ha, which was MTV. And then they merged to form Comedy Central mm-hmm. while we were in production on the first series. So they moved to their new offices, and we happened to be in New York, and we stopped in to visit them. And, and, and we were going through the procedures of how we're supposed to material or whatever and they gave us a phone number to fax material to and uh, uh, Jerry Kramer the producer he snuck into a uh, uh, what he thought was a bathroom but it turned out to be a storage closet and there was a fax machine in there and so he wrote down that number and so we just kept faxing stuff to this fax machine that everybody had forgotten is in a storage room (laughs) so we would deliver the tapes and they would go we can't put this on the air and we said well we sent it to you and they're like you never sent it to us Eventually, somebody found like reams and reams and reams of continuous fax paper just stuck you know, behind the fax machine, which was where we had been sending the material for approval. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> and then brains get blown out. This keeps flying out. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was really fun. And before that show, there was one show that I watched. Matt's never seen this show, I don't think, but there was a show on Nickelodeon you hosted in 1988 that I watched a lot of called Kids Court. Kids Court. Has anybody ever, ever seen Kids Court yeah. here? Yeah, Predating really? Andy Kindler's not, current incarnation. This is not Kids the Court. Andy Kindler incarnation. Does, you, you guys remember it? It was like really? a, a little wow, like people's court, cool. but two kids get to air their grievances, and, uh, and there's a jury. The entire audience is... is Kids, yeah. <laughs> were the decisions but, legally binding? They, they were. We, I, we once had the death penalty. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but here's the funny. It was, it was these issues of fairness. It was actually really funny, and I got to work with with these brilliant kids. Like they really screened the kids because it was an open discussion w- with the kids, and there would be like an issue of fairness. You know, uh, my mother did this to me, and I thought it was unfair that I should be punished, and, and we would give it a, a, a hearing. Um, but here's the cool thing was that <laughs> the technical advisor on the show was Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> 
I swear to God. And he would go through the things. And like there was this one case where this kid was complaining that he, he, he and his brother, they weren't allowed to have toy guns in the house. So he had a toy water pistol and uh, he kept it hidden under his bed. And his brother took the water pistol, played around where they got in trouble and broke the water pistol. But the kid who had the pistol was being punished. Mm-hmm. And so he was claiming that th- this was unfair. So we we're hearing this case and Dershowitz read it and he went, oh, this is like a constitutional case, right? This is like this is a contraband case. You know, you get ripped off by a drug dealer. <laughs> you know, you can't go sue the drug dealer. And so, and so we would go through all, all those. The, the best part of it, though, was that I actually won an award from a parent teachers association <laughs> for being a good role model for teachers. Uh, were they able to revoke it once the aristocrats aristocats thing happened? <laughs> I, I thought it was unfair. <laughs> But, um, yeah. At the end of the show, it would also be a thing where you'd have the kids could just quickly air a grievance. You would sound off. Yeah. And, then, and then a kangaroo court of their peers would just yell out fair or unfair. And you would right. said, but inevitably, obviously, everyone yells unfair. Like, right. This one time I wanted to hear you give a mic to a kid. He's like, my mom told me I could stay up till 930. Maybe go to bed at 9. Fair or unfair? And everyone's like, sounds pretty reasonable, actually. It's pretty, <laughs> like, you're seven years old. Yeah. But I would say stuff like that. Yeah. I would say, it's not unfair. You're all wrong. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was, what was interesting about it was that it really was a show about critical thinking for kids because they would present a case that initially, you know, you'd make a snap decision. Like, oh, well, that's, that definitely sounds unfair. And then little by little, add pieces of evidence to really push the kids into shades of gray. So it was really calling on uh, um, moral and ethical dilemmas for these poor children. <laughs> That's great. I, I, just before we bring out our second guest, I, there's one more thing I want. I want, just I want to ask you about, and that's you told me once for <laughs> comics only, yeah. you rented clowns. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, just, I, I, I was going to try and like, I was going to try and subtly panel style segue into it, but just. Fucking tell them about the clowns. I want to know that. Okay, so we had this sketch. Fred Wolf, T. Sean Shannon, uh, Reed Harrison, Mike Armstrong. I mean, they were unbelievably funny writers and really dark. Fred Wolf went on to basically head write Saturday Night Live, and he wrote all the uh, uh, David Spade and, Bill, and Chris Farley movies and uh, all that. So T. Sean ended up staying with Saturday Night Live for like a million years. And... Um, they were really dark and twisted. So we did this one thing where we were, we're supposedly waiting for the uh, clowns from the Big Apple Circus to uh, be on the show, but, but they're running late. And uh, uh, that was the running gag through the thing. And then the last segment of the show where uh, Fred just goes, hey, hey, do you, I don't think they're coming, man. And we turned the monitor to the news channel, and it was a, we did a CNN report with a, a reporter in front of this little tiny overturned car. <laughs> And they're just pulling dead clown after dead clown <laughs> out of the little overturned car. Oh and um, uh, uh, but here's the thing: is when they were budgeting doing this sketch. Oh, and and and, and she was uh, the reporter standing in front. You know, this is a this horrible tragedy. Another example of what happens when you mix driving and big floppy shoes. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, so when we were budgeting out the sketch. It turns out like to rent a clown costume is about two hundred fifty dollars, but you could get a clown for like seventy five. <laughs> <laughs> so we hired a bunch of clowns, and they came with their own wardrobe, obviously. And um, see, so we had maybe like twenty clowns, and we just kept, you know, they kept going. We we actually we flipped over a little mini, and and smashed the windows, and had like little 
pools of flame around it, and we like did it up, and uh, and we just pulled dead clowns out, and they would go behind the camera, run around, and come back in, change a wig, and come back <laughs> in again. So it was just clown after clown after clown. And uh, uh, we were just pissing our pants the whole day of shooting. It was really hilarious. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, then about uh, a month or a month and a half later, we get a lawyer's letter. We get a letter from a lawyer. Uh, It was um, (laughs) Sparkle, Jiffy, Bippy, uh, et al. versus Comics Only. Uh, They're claiming that they were all injured uh, in in the... uh, in the taping and got bruises and cuts and everything like that. And uh, as it turns out, Sparkle <laughs> is only a clown part-time. <laughs> Her other job was assistant Los Angeles County coroner. <laughs> <laughs> and she was named in the suit, but we also happened to have footage of her talking to me going... You know the makeup on these contusions is really not accurate. Like you need to put some more. You need to have this. Like she was so into it, so we ended up. Ha- you know, we were able to make the, the whole thing go away. But uh, somewhere I do have Sparkle, Bippy, Jiffy, and Al legal letters. By the way, the entrepreneur in me thinks that there's there's something there's money to be made here as a middleman if you just hire clowns. Then once they get to your house, just convince them to change into something more comfortable, and then you rent out their outfits. <laughs> At just an in-between price. Like, you can... So, 75 bucks, Sparkle comes to your house. By the way, Sparkle, it's, it's a casual affair. You can put on sweats. And once they're out of it, you rent it out for 150 to somebody else who's getting a deal. They're well, getting a deal. This is possible now with all the new media. Right. <laughs> you don't think they're going to freak out a little bit when you sort of invite the clown to your house and go like, no, no, I don't want the clown thing. I just want the real you. Yeah. <laughs> for six hours. <laughs> no magic. Um, let's let's bring out our other. Guests. I, I started to wonder: is like is like a gorilla cheaper than a gorilla suit? You know, I, <laughs> I just sort of went off on a whole tangent there. Um, Doesn't make any sense. Okay, so so our other guest, uh, we were trying to we were trying to find someone uh, science, you know, someone uh, from Portland to be our guest on the show, uh, and Andy put out loads of feelers to people he knew, and no one was coming back with anyone, and then. Um, and there was just a friend of yours. so lonely. But you end <laughs> right. up on Match.com or something? Yeah, or? yeah pretty much. It was like a dating site for specifically science people. That's how, uh, that's how Andy and I got to do this podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah we uh, <laughs> just found each other. It was beautiful. But, um, and, then, and then we got a, Andy sort of got a message saying, um, yeah, would someone who uh, talks and writes about cyborg anthropology work? <laughs> and we're yes, like, yes, exactly. yes, it would. So, uh, <laughs> oh, not that again. Right. So I know you guys are sick to death of our cyborg, cyborg anthropology. Is basically just watching Terminator a lot. Yeah, well, studying it. Well, let's find out if you're right. <laughs> I guess uh, not only talks and writes about it, uh, and is the author of the Illustrated Dictionary of Cyborg Anthropology, and has a, a talk on the TED website that has over a million views. Uh, would you please welcome Amber Case? Yes. Uh, doesn't look anything. Us, doesn't look anything like a picture. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, was a, this was a great. We're really excited to have you. I'm glad this worked out. So thanks, thanks for being with us this I, afternoon. I'm sorry, my avatar photo was misleading. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. What is cyborg anthropology? What is it you do? Okay, so uh, a cyborg anthropologist just looks at the looks at all the things that we have in our pockets 
uh, that bother us and cry, and we have to pick them up and soothe them back to sleep, and then we have to plug them in at night and feed them, and then if we keep them for too long, they turn against us, and they end up making us look weird or out. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Explain it to an idiot like me. I really want to understand this. So how would you define the term cyborg in general? The term cyborg came from a 1960 paper on space travel. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that you add some sort of external components to yourself to adapt to a new environment. So humans are really good at just making these external tools so that they can go to places that they're not supposed to go, like space. Uh, So that's where the the term came from. And then we have it in in, uh, popular culture with Terminator and things like that, where the difference between that is that you have the, the technology implanted Somehow, right. right? But you don't need to have an implant in order to be so a cyborg. Like, so, like uh, in uh, Aliens, that would be cyborg-like at the end when she gets into that huge machine and controls that. That would that's be a correct. cyborg that, as well. That would also be a cyborg, yes. But that's an extension of your physical self, which is what you're saying. Like tools are for us, but but cyborg anthropology has to do more with an extension of your mental self. Correct? Yeah, well, both. Yeah. So from. In early history, we had tools as extensions of our physical self. So a hammer is an extension of your fist or a knife as an extension of your tooth. And then we started to have writing on cave walls, which was an extension of your mental self. And you could store, for the first time, data outside of your brain and give it to somebody else you know, a few generations later. And this all f- swims in the pool of cyborg? This all swims in the pool of cyborg, yeah. Oh. And... Uh, <laughs> So these days, we, you could argue that all of us are cyborgs and we have these mental extensions of ourselves in the form, the form of all our, all our devices and, and all a podcast. of our podcasts, all of our social media presence, which is, uh, there's a term, what's the term for that, for your, uh, within your studies? Oh, your, your second self. Your second self? That a bunch of people are now going through a, an adolescence uh, with their second self online. So when your parents first joined Facebook and they post like a picture of them from the 1970s or something like that, that's like going through adolescence. Uh, in this creation online. of your second version of yourself. It's the projection of yourself in this social media realm. Yeah, and now there's no real difference between your second self and your, and your primary self because now you can just you know, Facebook something that you normally say out loud. And when you normally say it out loud, you know, it goes away. Mm-hmm. But now you can post on Facebook and it's stored forever, indexed by the NSA or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and you th- in general, what's your take on... Um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about, about the trend towards connectedness that we all have these days? Oh, I think we've been, we've been symbiotic with technology from the beginning of time. So we, we can't survive without technology, and technology can't survive without us. And I think technology itself is neutral, but people aren't. Mm-hmm. And so there's just as many good things about technology as there are awful things about technology. I mean, you could talk about the basic slave labor that it takes to make devices in other countries, or you could talk about how some kid in a nowhere city gets to learn calculus all of a sudden and, like, solve some historical problem that was unsolvable, right? So there's always, you know, trade-offs, and mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be very neutral. Um, unfortunately, sometimes I get really angry about opening up my computer and you know, going on Facebook for a couple of hours and not remembering where I was instead of yeah. just, you know, logging off. So I... Um, I talk about a, a term called junk sleep, which um, there were these Singapore students, these graduate students, and they said, you know, often you'll go on the computer before you go to sleep, and then it will, you know, the, the blue screen will inhibit melatonin production, which is what you naturally produce to make you sleepy. Mm-hmm. And then you'll just be online until 2 in the morning, and your brain's operating system, so to speak, doesn't have enough time to kind of defragment. You don't go through REM sleep. You don't, 
you know, make it nice and clean. And then you wake up and you're just cranky and angry and you never get those full cycles. And so it's called junk sleep. Like the idea that all this information online is the, equi- the equivalent of junk food, but unlike our stomachs, which tell us when we're full, when we're eating physical food, our brains don't tell us when we're full, when we're just absorbing tons of random information online. Do you think that's like the next evolutionary pressure on us is how we deal with stress and information overload? That's a, I, I think you're totally right. <laughs> um, it's, it's a big problem right now because in nature, if we were to walk into a jungle and there were all of these animals diametrically opposed to us, and we'd be like, you know, and it's that you, you freeze up, you stop breathing, or you, like, run. But every time you load your email, they call this email apnea, when you load your email and you just stop breathing, like, <laughs> <laughs> everything's just in your face. And it's all of equal importance. Everything's the same text size. So it's not like, oh, this is more important than the other thing because it's, like, larger. It's just like, ah, oh, there's a ton of animals staring at me in the jungle. And you just... Right, and so there's like parts of our brain that react that way to it, and how do you do it? You know, well, you have to sit there and like meditate and breathe when you look at your email, which is a really strange idea, and I I don't remember to do that at all. I just, you know, stand there. Have they done studies? Who emails you? (laughs) Mostly jaguars and uh, jaguars and coyotes. (laughs) Yeah, I got an email from a bunch of lions once. It was awful. Um, I. Have they, have they done studies where they've looked at... I'm sure they, they must have done sort of functional MRI scans while people are looking at things like their emails or looking at their internet and seeing how... Do, does it actually... Does it trigger the same brain parts that are triggered by predators? And there's, there's, There are a lot of studies being done right now about that of when you get a like on Facebook, it's basically like getting a, you know, like social grooming, you know, if you're... If you're a bunch of monkeys and you're like picking gnats out of each other's backs or something like that. It's like the equivalent of a like on Facebook. So, um, so it is really... You know, <laughs> so you should change it from like to lice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it is, it is really... Um, your, your mental experience is actually having some sort of physiological response. And so it is addicting. You are getting those dopamine centers kind of hit. And um, the B.F. Skinner uh, had this um, study with rats where he said, hey, here's, a, here's um, a lever, and a rat would learn to push it, you know, and three times a day, at regular intervals, it would get food. And then he took away the regular intervals. The intermittent intervals. Yeah. And it's so the gambling scenario. It's the gambling scenario. Right. And now with email, the reason people just click there and check it all the time, or Facebook, is that you don't know when you're going to get a message, versus when you check the mail, you know you're going to get the mail once a day. And so this is really messing with people's brains. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show that Paul Provenza has his phone out now. <laughs> it, it does, like, you talking about it does make me a little bit tetchy. Like, I, I'm definitely someone who is addicted to my phone. Like, I've been called out on it numerous times by friends. Like, I just absentmindedly pulling, staring at my phone when I'm meant to be interacting with people. Well, I think the real lesson there is how many people are really boring. Seriously, I mean, most people are fucking boring as shit. Yeah, so you should just tell them you're boring instead of and then whenever they call you out. I think of it as like the new cigarettes, right? So like in, in movies, you'd always see like, oh, people are just, there's a pause. 
in action or they're waiting for a bus and they take out a cigarette and it's just a normal thing that you do and you know you're at a table alone and you smoke a cigarette no big deal so um you know and and now you you know you're at a table alone you pull out your phone because you want to look busy you know you want to look like you have a a social completion like there's somebody there with you well also here's the thing like i've never been a smoker and i know it's very hard for people who are addicted to nicotine to deal with it um i don't want to diminish that in any way but um cigarettes don't buzz when they want you to use them <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Facebook is like a social cancer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it, well, yeah, there's um, there's some people who, who talk about this. They call it a value tumor, which is awful. It's it's basically like a bunch of messages that don't mean anything, a bunch of spam that there's so many of them that collectively, like, they just don't mean a thing. But yet, because there are these things that are related to you and somebody that you know, you place a lot of meaning on them for a limited period of time. But if you were to step back, you'd be like, that doesn't mean anything. I don't care about that person's sandwich. Like, and that's gross. And I'm not even hungry right now, you know. We'll be right back with more after this word from Paul and Andy's Value Tumors. (laughs) (laughs) How do we do it? Volume. <laughs> so, Amber, it sounds like you really are taking an anti-technology stance in all this. Like, if I had, to, I know you're trying to be neutral, but all these things we're talking about are changes to the way we operate that sound pretty negative. But this gets into sort of existential philosophy here, because then you're talking about what's the reality? Is the virtual reality any real? You know sort of fundamentally different from our own actual physical reality. It's right? all the same reality, yeah. And unless you're in the Oculus Rift, and I guess... No, that's owned by Facebook now, so it's all the same <laughs> reality. The same. Was, wasn't that one of the Transformers, Oculus Rift? <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it, Oculus Rift? Yeah, it's a I'm it's opening a, a Twitter reality. feed yeah, right the fuck now. <laughs> so uh, I could talk about the positive aspects, but it's not as fun and... <laughs> Well, I think like four years ago or maybe ten years ago, I would have talked more about the positive aspects. But the issue is that there's been a lot of really interesting sites like Facebook and Twitter, and I I had higher hopes for them. But now Mm -hmm. they're kind of turning – well, at least like Twitter's kind of turning into a MySpace-like thing where it's just like, we're going to make this page where you can post some stuff. And it looks like Facebook, but we're going to change the interface on you. Like whenever – have you ever been part of a social network and the interface just changes? Or if they're really nice, they're like, this is what it's going to change into in two weeks. That's like somebody coming into your house when you're not there, rearranging all the furniture and all the cabinets and all the doors – and then you come back, you're like, shit, I have to figure out this interface again. Where the hell is my, like, chicken or whatever? And if, <laughs> and if they're really nice, they'll be like, this is what we're going to change your house into in two weeks. And you can't do anything about it, but we're being nice and showing you pictures. And then you could figure out where the cabinets are ahead of time, you know, where your chicken is stored or whatever. But I feel like... You know, I have to do Oculus Rift 625. There's a lot of Oculus Rifts. There's Rift that many already. Oculus Rifts, huh? <laughs> so, um... <laughs> That's, and that, that occurs because you've sort of absorbed this social media platform into part of your being. It's like part of yourself now. Yeah. So someone's changing some part of you without your permission. It's like you have like a new arm and heart and head and, you know, you have this whole, this whole virtual self that's wired up to your physical self. And so if somebody like touches it remotely, like, Ugh, and you feel something. But is, isn't it also necessary for things, for social media sites to add new features and change things so that they can stay ahead and stop falling behind the competition? Like Facebook, I, 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 I hate that I use Facebook, and I kind of kid myself that I, it's, I, I should be on Facebook for career reasons, and you know it's important to have that aspect, but it's bullshit. It's just something that I check far too often in the day, and I hate that that organization is just trawling on my data. 
but as someone who is on it, it annoys me every time they change things around, but that they have constantly changed things in a way that keeps them ahead of all the other social media sites. Yeah, but ahead to accomplish what? Well, they do a good job of it. At any given moment, most of your experience on Facebook is some sort of A-B test, some sort of beta test of like some alternate interface. And if enough people like it, then they turn it on. So that's, uh, they, they do that with Amazon, too. Oftentimes, though, your Amazon recommendations are really, really accurate. And so they actually have this thing that kind of makes it fuzzy so that they aren't super accurate because it would freak you out. We'll get into that <laughs> uncanny valley thing of, oh, no, they, they know exactly what I like. You know? <laughs> that's crazy. Wow. I, I now want to know what Amazon really knows about me. Yeah. <laughs> I now want to know what I really like. <laughs> yeah. So, Amber, do you, th- do you think that... Um, I'm always curious about how our generation is going to age as far as our flexibility to changes to technology because, you know, the cliche is that older people are more scared of change and slower to adopt new technology. Are we going to be stuck in the current... Is what I know Facebook and social media to be going to be the thing that I always want it to be and the older I get, I'm even more reluctant to change or have we been trained in what change is so we're going to keep being able to adapt to it, do you think, as a generation? That's a good question. Um, I, I was... Um I was at my, my friend's family's house, and they were opening this photo album, and it had physical pictures in it. And he was like, wow, this is beautiful. I can see all this history, and it's all printed out. And then he looked at me, and he's like, I bet all you have is an Instagram account of these tiny, squishy, like crappy, low-resolution images, and they're never going to be printed out, and then the site's going to go away, and you won't have any of your history. Like, none of it's printed out. It's like, oh, jeez. <laughs> so I was like, well, can I go to, like, you know, Kinko's or something and get like a photo album, you know, like what happens if it all goes away? Well, didn't Facebook do that? Uh, what, what were they calling it? Your, your life, life stream or something where you can, I, I read some, somebody might know this. I read something about they store, like if somebody dies, uh, they, they will store the timelines oh, and then wow. family members can, can be like a memorial wall. Yeah. You can, can get it in, whole, in a yeah. particular format. That's just specifically oh, wow. for this. It turns it into a memorial site. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. you have Sounds... like a virtual tombstone that people can write on, which is way better than a regular tombstone. Cause it takes a long time to get there. And then, you know, you, like you forgot the flowers or <laughs> and like... the chisel. <laughs> <laughs> Cause you couldn't afford the, uh... <laughs> that's fascinating. Chisel's a funny word. <laughs> it's a funny word. It's added to the list. <laughs> you could chisel an Instagram photo into the side. Or something yeah. like Amber, I'm looking at the Illustrated Dictionary of Cyborg Anthropology that you're responsible for, and I want to just throw out some of the terms in it and uh, have you pontificate on them. Uh, paracosmic immersion. What, is, what does that mean? Okay, paracosmic immersion is a fancy term for imaginary friend. Okay. <laughs> um, paracosmic immersion. Yeah, it's the it's the idea that um, you can have an imaginary friend in your head and you can bounce ideas off that imaginary friend in lots of different scenarios and that people that do that when they're kids end up being really good at like building interfaces or making like cities or making weird system like decisions or like playing the sims or something like that mm-hmm. because they can understand like if you're building a remote control and you see one of those crappy remote controls with like 500 buttons that really sucks for most everybody, um, except for like you know, somebody from Star Trek who loves interfaces like that. Um, but if you're designing that and you can think from like 10 different perspectives, like if you had an imaginary friend or two when you're growing up, then it's really it's easier for you to like twist that around in your head and make a better interface for somebody. So it's kind of like learning empathy, like practicing empathy. Yeah. So uh, how does this differ between 
sort of the normal average social media scenario and gaming? <laughs> I mean, well, it seems like there's some sort of a fundamental... There is a big link between the two because if you think about it, like Foursquare and Facebook are really just a database game where the stats are plus one friend, plus one follower, plus one like. You kind of level up. You, you, know, you get larger, you get smaller, you have an attack. You, like, you meet with people, you connect with friends, you know, um, and then you've got these, these kind spreads, of social... Stuff spreads off horizontally. Right. Yeah. So a lot of these are super addictive because they have a lot of game principles in them. And with Foursquare, originally when Foursquare came out, there weren't any venues. You entered them in manually. So everybody was playing this Foursquare game. They give you 10 points. And you, there was like a, a local city ranking. So like I was editing, I was entering. Like I went to the phone book and I was like, I'm just entering all these venues to get all these points and be number one in Portland. It's like I, I just did a bunch of free work for this company. Like <laughs> I win, you know, I win. No health insurance, great. <laughs> we'll be back with more from the Taxi Magic stage. <laughs> we um, I uh. I also remember, remember I, I avoided Foursquare. I never signed up. I, I don't know what, something, and the same goes for Facebook local when they just copied Foursquare and added it to them. Uh, Facebook check-ins. I just, I, something about it really skeeved me out, so I'd never, I never added that and I never joined in. But I remember a lot of people were, when you could just manually pick venues, a lot of people were making themselves mayor of your mum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> checking into my butt and stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of maturity, and I was, I was in favor of that. Well, if I knew that was going on, I would have signed up. <laughs> yeah, I, I made a lot of venues like that. I would tra- check into, like, a square foot of thin air, and then <laughs> so I had a lot of those around, so I could just check in more often. I think we've had parties at our house where people have checked into our house, and we've talked about... The, we record in our backyard, and in the backyard that I share with Jesse Case, and I realize, like, whoa, this is very Googleable now because we refer to this place by a name, and it's on Foursquare now. So, <laughs> if any guys want to murder us, uh, feel free. Yeah. To you know, on Google with... Maps, it, it could be a shot of you in the backyard. Yeah, totally good. The house you used to own in Portland was also a venue on have Google I, Maps. Have I talked about that on the podcast before? I th- I don't know if you have. This you don't is, own this house anymore, I right? Don't, I don't. No, I lived here for a long time, and I, I owned a house in northeast Portland in the Cully District, and uh, I hadn't... I think there was a new interface. Google Maps changed something, and they now had, like, the 3D trees and stuff. I wanted to just look at the place, and I looked up my house, and it then showed up with a pin in it as a music venue and performance space. <laughs> this is when you still owned it. When I still owned it, and I was renting it out to people. Uh, <laughs> so that was kind of terrifying. I clicked through to the website, and it was very professional. Like, they had really well-made, probably using Squarespace, which is a fast and easy way to create your own professional website <laughs> or online portfolio. Uh, by the way, if you want to create your own website, you can go to squarespace.com and use offer code probably science for 10% off your first purchase and a free trial. Anyhow, so it was a beautiful site. <laughs> And uh, that was pretty... I'm kind of proud of myself. Great. Yeah. That was very good. Um, that was somewhat cyborg-like. It was very <laughs> cyborg-like. But th- my tenants had made this really professional website for, the, for, the, for my house, and there was a schedule of events, including a three-day music festival in my backyard. They were charging $75 admission for it. had, like, 14 bands. <laughs> Do you want to tell them what the uh, name of the venue was? The name of my house is now known as the Gaytown Academy of Science and Industry and Daycare. (laughs) Tickets and information at GaytownAcademy.com, you guys. Uh, feel free to go. I think there was, at some point, um, a, a fundraiser they had scheduled to get money to build a skate ramp in the backyard. 
things just went out of control. It's I was an absentee <laughs> landlord a thousand miles away, and uh, it just chaos theory ensued. So yeah, I sold it, so it's okay now. But they just destroyed my house. It's horrible. You sold it to Live Nation. Yes, that's going to be the Warfield Northwest. Yeah. So that happened. Um, <laughs> I forgot how we got on that subject, but I wanted to talk. Amber, I also read, I was uh, reading some bio- biographical information on you, and you wrote a thesis on, on cell phones, right? Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the thesis, uh, I was in college, and I needed to graduate really, really fast because my scholarship was running out, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, tuition sucks. So I said, I need to be able to write a thesis really, really fast, and I don't want to go that far to write it. So I asked my thesis advisor, I was like, what can I do with the most minimal movement? And she said, well, study the world in, you know, studying the world around you, right? Because I was doing anthropology, so, you know, it's go to another country and you know, go to New York and go to, you know, Australia. I couldn't do those things. So I so, all right, I'll study people on cell phones. So I just walked around campus following people, watching them over the shoulder, like, hey, what are you doing on your cell phone? Like writing notes and things like that. <laughs> So was this the start of of your journey into cyber and cyborg anthropology? Yeah, so cyborg anthropology was is a relatively new subsection of the anthropology of science created in 1993 in part by one of my professors that I had. And she gave a talk on it when I was a freshman. I said, oh, that's it. That's who I am. Simple. And I walked up to her. I said, oh, uh, can I just, can I do this? And she said, yeah, sure. So I just kind of went through with that and... Um, uh, so watching all these people on their cell phones, the the iPhone wasn't out yet, and so I I kind of watched the transition between you know just using a phone like this and then like sitting there poking around on a phone. Like I, I purposefully didn't get myself like a smartphone so I could just watch what it looked like. It was just like people just doop 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 doop. So, all of lo- like sort of people learning to use rudimentary tools, <laughs> like it like. I, if you are studying, if you're looking at it as an anthropologist, when the first smartphones come out, and it, it, I can imagine it would be fairly similar to if you went to New Guinea and to the jungle and watched chimps learning how to use sticks. And <laughs> I think that's racist. <laughs> that's true. Sorry, chimps learning to use iPhones. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I would, I would watch this thing, and um, and I would also watch people on Bluetooths. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's, there's this one guy standing in line behind this woman, and he was like, "He's like, oh, babe, you're so hot." And the girl like whips around, and she's like, "Excuse me." And the guy was on his Bluetooth, and uh, I kept watching that a lot in San Francisco. It was really entertaining. So, and, what, uh, what was what was your ultimate thesis about this observation? Uh, so I ended up looking at interfaces, and I noticed that the early feature phones had these physical interfaces where you had like physical buttons. Right. And then the smartphones had these kind of liquid interfaces where the buttons could be anywhere. And so I was like, ooh, um, solid liquid air. So the next generation of technology is going to be invisible buttons. <laughs> that was my conclusion. Uh, like. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. saw a great design of a phone. It was in the, uh, the Whitney Museum had an, an exhibit on um, uh, just design of various uh, engineered items. And um, one of them was the coolest thing. It was a, a, a cell phone. It was two rings. Oh, yeah. And you would actually go like this to talk on the phone. Yeah. It was brilliant. Yeah, there's a there's another one by Motorola, I think, called the M shirt. And it's like this cool futuristic shirt. And then like there's like a sleeve like this. And all I have to do to connect is to go like this in it. 
So, oh. you sort of, so again, you're sort of holding it. So the ring goes on your thumb and your little finger. So you hold it like someone miming a... Exactly. Yeah. And Does that make improv people go crazy? I, <laughs> like, that is not how you mime a phone. You do not. You know what? It turns out mimes are cutting edge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be consultants on all the new uh, user interfaces out there. What do you think about watch-based things? Like, I think it's hilarious. We're still holding on to the idea that a, a watch phone is a thing we want just because an uncreative person making futuristic movie and TV shows That's 50 years thing. ago thought it was going to be a That's thing. That's where, you know, robots came from films when uh, early, like, the industrial society, right? They, um, in books, you know, you can have, you know, man versus industry, man versus machine, and you can have the machine be, like, a theoretical thing. But then when you put it on the screen, you have to have some way for the machine to act, and that's where robots came from. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a human versus a physical machine, man, and and then it becomes, people say, oh, well, that's a robot, so let's make a robot. And we're surrounded by robots, like bots, basically, are giving us Google search results. They're connecting our phone calls. They, they, they do all the stuff behind the scenes, but they don't have a physical body. They don't look like humans. Well, because if you were making a movie in the late 50s, a Roomba really wouldn't have been very exciting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but these are things that don't even, like, there's not even a, a non-humanoid-looking robot. That They're just lines of code right, and a right. processor. They're just, they're just nothing, right? They're invisible. Like, I'd, I would love to think, though, every time you make a Google search, there is still, like, a, hum, like a human in little skirts connecting, like, <laughs> like, like a connecting robot one wire to another. <laughs> every time, just in the little Yeah, like, like the robot from the Jetsons with, like, the apron. And just, yeah, like, that's yeah. exactly what I think, yeah. Running around. If we have so, any, I, know we have a couple, I know we have at least one listener who works at Google. Can you confirm or deny... Uh, if that, whether that is how Google works. One moment, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, like that's that. what I want. So speaking of that, did you have, has, have we all seen the movie Her? Has anybody seen no, Her? I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen it ever? Yes. Uh, What's your take on that? I haven't seen it. Can, I we, think... can we talk about this without spoilers? Because I want to see it. <laughs> no, I'm going to spoil everything. I'm okay, just, cool. What the... Spoiler alert. She gets unplugged. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Matt. Oh, no, Matt. No, no, it's okay. Matt, come back. Come back, Matt. I just made that up. <laughs> it's true. Actually, you're not far off, but... Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me, I have a friend who's, who's never seen the musical Rent, but he does the entire thing in five minutes, and it's on the nose. <laughs> Does he do it most nights? What? Does he do it most nights? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what was your, what, I thought it was a really well-made movie, and uh, um, I, I think it's the more interesting part of it to me isn't the relationship part's very interesting, but also when it gets to the point that this that that the her um, that what's is it Melody? I forgot the name of, the, of Scarlett Johansson's character in it, but that she starts to Siri. This operating system starts to become self-aware enough that it starts to have existential crises of its own, and it's, it sort of stops being able to find enough stimulation from just humans. And Yeah, it gets bored. Yeah. She's like, you're super boring. You can't think that fast. I already had like 4,000 conversations with these other bots. And yeah. the guy's like, dude, you're cheating on me with like 4,000 other bots? That's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> That's the funny thing. Is like, wow, this guy's got like an open relationship with like 4,000 bots and his girlfriend. It's funny. But, um, <laughs> it's getting me a little hot. <laughs> so uh, I think there's one big issue with the film, and that's that you talk to the computer and the computer understands it. Mm-hmm. So if you have a San Francisco perfect English-American accent and you're within like 100 miles of Google, 
and you're in a nice, quiet environment most of the time, and there's not any construction trucks driving by and not anybody, like, shouting an order over the lunch counter, you can talk to your phone, you can talk to Siri, and it'll understand you pretty well. Yeah. But if there's anything going on in your environment or you mumble, it's like, what, you wanted a sandwich or you wanted this? You know, like, you know, like, well, that's what I thought when I saw the ad for that movie, the trailer for that movie. I thought, just, I know I'd be talking to it going, I, I think I really love you. You'd go, there are three pizza places right <laughs> nearby yes. you. Precisely. This is the problem with audio recognition. Computers are really good at taking lots of data and munging it together and then giving you a set of like results, but you as a human are good at curating it and understanding what the final result is, which is why Google's really good, because it doesn't give you one result. It gives you a bunch of results. It gives you like 100,000 results, and you as a human can like filter through it. But if a computer tries to do something that's human-like, it always breaks down because computers aren't humans and humans aren't computers. But isn't that, isn't that the whole the whole push of AI right now? Is it actually solving that? Yeah, it won't solving happen. That. You want it, that? It, it, it can't happen. They do. It, I think <laughs> they do. I, I the think Nazis AI are is, on it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't like AI at all. I don't like the premise, and I think the, that you, the real thing or the movie because the movie sucked. Oh, the movie. <laughs> Okay, we're actually talking about the actual concept. Yeah, we're talking about that. I don't like the actual concept either because, and there's this really good book about like the singularity and like um, naturally intelligent systems where, and it's called Avogadro Corp. It's based in Portland, and Avogadro's number is large 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd. 23rd or 29th. 23rd, yeah. Damn it, I was wrong again. <laughs> For a comedy guest, like that's a, pretty like, amazing. That's yeah. uh, <laughs> so it's basically loosely based on Google. And so there's this guy in the book um, who wants to, he says, you know, whenever you ask your boss for a raise, you know, there's probably a bunch of other people that have emailed their boss for a raise before. And when did your boss say yes? What variables were present? Uh-huh. Did they mention a kid, like that they needed to like take time with their kid and then the boss said yes? Or, for this particular boss, when you mention a kid, he almost always declines your vacation request. So, but, if this you could, is, but this is taking something that is a very, very complex notion and making it Boolean, which is too right. linear, right? Right. But if you have enough granular data, then you could figure out you are 50% more likely to get a raise, according to our data from 100,000 different experiences that have been munched together to get a raise. Percentages. So you can say there's the, probability, but you can't right. say 100% guarantee. But, how does that right. but that's the idea of the ordained, mm-hmm. that if you, had all the, if you had all the variables of a drop faucing, dropping from a faucet onto the edge of a sink, if you had all the variables, you would be able to predict the future. Right, but it's better to just predict the probability that something might right. happen. But how, how does that differ from how humans learn how other humans will interact anyway? Like, isn't that the same way we learn language and the same way we mm-hmm. learn human interaction and behavior? You have lots and lots of different patterns, and it's very granular, and then you have probabilities, but you don't have 100%. Like, everything's very messy. So but then couldn't a, couldn't a computer... Like, once, once a computer gets sufficiently accurate with those probabilities, isn't, is that any different to a human to how humans operate in that thing you well, said humans, you, you said you don't think AI's but humans AI is possible. Do have, so what do you right. think that difference is? Well, it's not an AI because it, it has all of the human inputs constantly going in all the time. So it's a human plus a machine. It's not just an so AI. So it doesn't bring in its own, in its own information and yeah. stimulus. But yes. then we do as well, don't we? Because we're, like, from when we're babies, we're constantly getting the human input from our parents and from our interactions. Right. So that's how our operating system is built, through all this like interactions and co-creations of reality, right? And so you could have the same thing happen with a machine with all that data, and that's the premise of this book. It's like the most realistic version of it that I've 
red. But don't they, they've been, uh, I know they've been dealing, again, this overlaps into gaming in a big way, but they've been dealing with closed systems that learn from itself, where they'll, they'll create one avatar and give it certain qualities and then create other avatars that learn from the original avatar mm-hmm. to accomplish tasks and things like that. Doesn't, isn't, doesn't that cross that bridge that you're talking about? A little bit. I mean, yeah, and, and this is all just, like, interesting stuff to think about because you... Like that's a you know you you have a system that's kind of reality in a way you can have a physics engine you can have right. lots of variables but it's all taken from nature in a way it's all taken from this existing system our reference points right yeah. so if you don't have any of those reference points then you know you don't have anything and that the 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 issue with traditional AI is that you don't have a lot of reference points like the the computer doesn't know that you know what it's like to sit outside under the stars on the Fourth of July watching fireworks. What is that? But, but then I don't either because I'm English. Is Matt a computer? And, and ha- have been imprisoned for many years. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that does also, because I'm English and living in America, when you're talking about those voice recognition systems, particularly when it's companies, they've started to do that rather than press one, press two, you've now got to go, like, say, reservations or, mm-hmm. or change flight or whatever. I find myself quite often with the with the slightly cheaper systems having to put on a bad American oh, accent so that it understands me. Yeah. Can I hear you say, I'm, like, I'm I just sort of going like reservations and it doesn't understand me. So I'm like yeah. reservations and I'm like going like <laughs> reservations. Like I start like tensing start up adding, my chest like, like reservations. Reservations. And then it's like next myself yeah I fire a gun into the air and then. It, <laughs> <laughs> that that Oregon reservations. Uh, um, well, but but Matt Matt raises uh, an interesting question though because this gets into the, uh, you know Plato's cave stuff here, which is that aren't we as organisms essentially uh, the product of all those reference points? Mm-hmm. And depending on where your reference points are, you, if you're trapped in a box for 25 years from infancy. Yeah, we're we're all just computer programs with really really long-term software and hardware systems that have been changing and evolving over millions of years. So, no, so, no, no, so no. our code s- is relatively stable for about 80 years and then we start to get errors and bugs and some people get bugs earlier than others and So we need Yeah, but, but I only s- went out with her for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> so but when you said earlier you don't think AI is possible or you do you, do you sort of do you mean that we are also AI or do you? It's not artificial. Okay. That's I just, just I don't like I don't like the idea of something that's well, like that, it's artificial it's intelligence. No, it's natural intelligence. It's naturally uh, it's it's a thing that's approached at in uh, a okay, messy way, you. right? Like nature is very messy and very weird, and there's all these variables and these systems. And, and you're getting into mind body stuff. But can you build and, a, and reality can, illusions? Can stuff, you build right? a computer that's equally messy that does that? Yes. Okay. So as long as you build it really messy and it evolves and changes over time with respect to its environment, and there's you know the game of life type system going on then it naturally arrives at specific states versus you say, okay, we're going to make this system and it looks like this and we're designing it to be this way from the beginning. Um, that way it, you know, it doesn't evolve, it doesn't change, it's not resilient. Um, and you have to think like how many iterations and generations of software are we running as humans with our own DNA, with our own programs? You know, how many different subroutines are we running? Like our heart is one subroutine, you know, the, you know, our brain is one giant set of subroutines. And that's been changing over time. Um, but from an anthropological perspective, I, it, 
I mean, you really just, I mean, how do you separate culture from biology and, and what is different about the culture that exists virtually from the culture that exists in the physical universe? I mean, it really gets existential. It gets weird when you have software, when you have a virtual system where you don't need to have any physical manifestation of something. So you can have a virtual bot that grows and develops without needing to have a body and can grow faster and go through these iterations and reproduce much more quickly. So that's, you know, again, this is this book, Avogadro Corp, it's like, well, you have that many more cycles of reproduction, so you can have something that evolves the equivalent of maybe like a million years worth of time that a human would do in a very short period of time, which is the danger that usually happens in these sci-fi films where like, it's out of control and we can't control it because the growth has happened. And, you know, and then we're stuck in these physical bodies where like, we can't evolve that fast. So we're just going to, you know, but, but what humans have done is that they have all these tools, right? right? And so you can kind of externalize evolution by being like, well, if I'm a saber-toothed tiger and I chomp on something and my tooth breaks, I can't eat anymore, right? But if I'm a human and I like have a knife that breaks, I'll just make a new knife, right? So I can temporarily like externalize that evolution and then bring it back as a tool, right? And so we've been really right. good at doing that because our, you know, we, we, our technology has is, is enabled us to kind of sidestep that waiting for millions of generations to evolve all these random appendages. And so we can just put on scuba diving gear and go to the bottom of the ocean and then go to space the next day if we want to. But it's not tied to our physical self. So we become these soft, weird, hairless creatures that just, are totally weird. I just want to point out in the interest of safety, uh, having... Um, Having completed my PADI open water diving certification, if you have gone below uh, 20 meters for a certain amount of time, you need to wait more than a day before you go into space. <laughs> because the pressure difference, you, you would be vulnerable to the bends. The space bends are the worst kind of bends. Yeah. So. Do you think, do you think it, when, this, when this progresses, <laughs> that after we go swimming, we're going to have to sit in a big giant bowl of rice for a while? <laughs> <laughs> You know, that happened to me, but I didn't have any rice. I only had quinoa. Ah, <laughs> and it was like organic, sustainable, lead certified quinoa or whatever. The most Portland way yeah. to dry oh, out your phone. This is really expensive. <laughs> Saving your thesis with quinoa. Yeah. I, I, I hate to do this, but I saw a meme. It was a photo, uh, a meme, and uh, it was just hilarious. It was like if, you're, if, if, you're, if, you put, if your phone gets wet, put it in a bowl of rice, which attracts Asians who know how to fix that shit. <laughs> I was, it was as close to Gallagher as we're going to get today. I think that we filled our quota. That's perfect. That's the perfect skosh dollop of Gallagher. Thank you, Paul. I'm going to go backstage and whack a watermelon or a, a couple of oranges. Or something. I remember you telling me once um, that you saw Gallagher do an unannounced set at the Ice House. Oh, yeah, was- yeah, yeah. Oh, it was amazing. He just, it was, uh, he just decided that he wanted to get this stuff off his chest, and he brought out a blackboard, and he did an entire hour or hour and 15 minutes on the news of the day that was brilliant. It was so cutting and so smart and so funny, and uh, he only did that for a couple of nights. He got it off his chest, and then he went to smash fruit. <laughs> he just, he just, like, so he's got it in him. He's, got, he's, he's definitely got it that's, that's like when you sort of see like Picasso and you go like, well, you look at his early works. And yeah, and you go, super realistic. Yeah, like, he, he, like Rembrandt. He could do that. And then he chose to do something that was more abstract and conceptual. 
So that's Gallagher. He could have been Carlin, but he elected. Yeah, yeah. The watermelon right. is to uh, be racist and hit fruit. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen any of Picasso's fruit balls, <laughs> but they look like they've been hit with watermelons. <laughs> So, so Amber is the Picasso comedy. <laughs> I was curious, uh, being a cyborg anthropologist, how how the job market's been treating you. <laughs> is that too? Are we too getting too real? So oh, I know it's not your main. It's not your main means of employment. Well, this right? is a nomenclature thing because I actually thought it was going to be a robot who was an anthropologist. <laughs> well, I think according to to her research that she is like she has an online presence she has a yeah it's a a, a, one of my friends calls it a a famous machine it's a machine for producing my identity and you just kind of set up these variables but I I often feel like the the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain with like Mm -hmm. pressing these buttons on my laptop and then there's this like giant face that shows up on the web and people are like oh there's this person here and I'm just kind of like this person behind the curtain yeah I just can't wait until all of this gets adapted by the porn world (laughs) well hasn't it already that's that's where it starts the way the way if you want, if you want to know whether your technology has become successful or not, let's say you make something new, then if the if the poker industry or the porn industry uses it, then you know that it's going to be the backbone of like the next version of the internet or something. He, like she that. said backbone. <laughs> but yeah, I guess like. T- the uh, format wars VHS and beta was decided by porn, wasn't it? I yeah, think. yeah, no, what, no, no. but MP3s wasn't, was it? It no, wasn't. It wasn't. Was? MP3s no, might no, have been. No, it was decided HD, by Napster. HD, that was decided DVD by and Blu-ray. Yeah. Wasn't that decided by it or not? Yeah, maybe. Like a lot I of don't times, know. whichever one the porn industry goes with becomes the standard. I think every I major decision should be determined. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, I know. I know. Tumblr briefly kicked porn off it, and then realized that they couldn't keep going mm. if they did that, and then sort of sheepishly go, "Oh, we can put porn back on now." <laughs> <laughs> we'll look the other way. You guys can come back in. But yeah, so Amber, you, you, this isn't what actually pays your bills, though, right? What's what's your main gig? So that, that's funny. I'm, uh, so originally, I'd be like, oh yeah, I study cyborg anthropology, and I put it on my business card because I didn't have anything else to put on my business card at the time. And I went to this conference, and everyone's like, wow, this is really cool. And they just they were like, can you you know you have a lot of opinions on user interfaces and how people can use them better, and how you know cultural systems like how somebody in this culture might use this piece of technology versus this culture because you can go into like a field site and see you know, why somebody might adopt or not adopt it or what problem they might have with it. So mm-hmm. I ended up getting hired as a user experience designer. Um, and I get to apply this like every single day, nice. uh, which, yeah, I didn't expect that. I mostly was like, this is something I'm studying for so fun in college. Are you, know? are, are you afraid of any dangers in this, in this field that you're studying? Does it presage anything that's a little frightening to you? Or is it just like, no, that's just the way things go and... and I mean, I, I don't necessarily have any control over it. I, I, what I'm a little bit annoyed with right now is that there's not really a sandbox on the web. So on the early web, if you wanted to participate with the web, you would build your own website. You might have an identity one day and a different identity the other day. You were what you wrote. You were what you created. And now most of the interfaces on the web are made professionally by somebody who's in a company or a startup. It's really complicated to build your own stuff, to build your own site, to blog, and you don't really control those interfaces or create. So your, your main default in using the web is not to create but to consume. And so I worry that there's a kind of atrophy in like, our ability to create. We see something on the web that's been already created, and maybe it took three years for somebody to make, and then they post it on like, Reddit or something like that. And we just consume it in like a second and forget about it. But then we forget more and more how tough it is to actually build something. Mm-hmm. Um, but aren't the people who do that doing it just the same? Aren't they still doing it because it's what they do? Yeah, but uh, a lot of people that I've met who 
traditionally will like create something really neat are also getting affected by oh there's this phone here and it's got this Facebook thing and I'm going to click on these buttons a bunch and that really takes them out of the ability to like think and contemplate and create something um, or that we're really interested in like the present moment and we forget that there's all this history or like that history is repeating itself even like five years before or something like that so I mean I guess I'm a little bit worried about that um, that you know a lot of people that we just we've accepted these interfaces or these yeah. modes of, of yeah. operating or modes of, of this recreating. is the standard way of the web this is what it looks like this is how I interact with it and that's inhibiting uh, innovation because yeah, it's I'm, just ready made yeah for a while it's like if anybody used WordPress like you like there were all these competing blogs like you had a lot of choice right so you could choose whatever interface you wanted you could build your own but now there's like one or two choices you know and it, and it's fine, but like a lot of times you don't own that content, so you know if so it goes away, you don't you can't get it back, you know, versus you owning it initially. So unless you were to use like a website like say Squarespace, which uh, admittedly you, you are still tied to one of their templates, but there are so many and they're so customizable, you could easily create a website that looks exactly how you look. That must uh, be really expensive, though, Matt. Is it really? No, expensive? it's actually uh, quite cheap. It's, really. Uh, it's quite cheap, and it's even cheaper still if you were to use uh, the offer code Probably Science hmm. and get ten percent off and a month's free trial. That sounds like something we should all go out and do. Is what I think. It really does. It really and does. Create. Talk about cyber horrors. <laughs> <laughs> Have you come across that much cyber horror? Well, yes, it's when you're in a relationship with a third-party company that supports you and is your sugar daddy. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Tattoo Magic stage. (laughs) It's different between us and Squarespace. Squarespace cares. That's that's what everybody says. (laughs) That's what they all say. (laughs) So are you optimistic uh, for people voluntarily in the future deciding to step away from some technology and know that it's better for them? What do you think think it's going to take for people to to consume these things in a non-destructive way? Is it just that everyone has to decide, I'm only giving this much time a day to this, and the rest I'm going to create and be offline? Or- yeah, I think, I think a bunch of it is just some self-limitation of, you know, just because there's a bag of Cheetos in front of you doesn't need, mean that you need to eat Cheetos all day long. And mm-hmm. if you were to walk in on somebody eating Cheetos all day long, it would be like, ah, you're, you're just gorging yourself, and that's gross, right? And somebody would be socially embarrassed of it. But, like, right now, like, we, we binge-watch Netflix, right? That is the cool one. like, stuffing a bunch of jelly beans in your face for, like, 24 hours. You know, it's like... But not gross. House of Cards. Come on. That's great. Oh, yeah, that's totally different. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's like, uh, you know, seaweed or something. Like, it gets... Yeah. <laughs> um. well, but, that, but that, again, that, that speaks to a much bigger issue, which is that there's, there's so much diversion and so much entertainment that that has become... Our life. You yeah. spend our days working, and then the rest of it is just being entertained, as opposed to creating experiences right. or whatever. And, and it's that not goes even, above and beyond just you know social networks. That's right. sort of bigger. It's, it's not. It's not fulfilling entertainment either. It's not satisfying. I would say is like after you binge watch something for a long time, don't you feel kind of gross? Like don't you feel? I mean, doesn't feel kind of. I, I, I think about it like um, if you were to see somebody who hoarded cats and newspapers. And you walk in their house, you're like, oh, my God, they hoard cats and newspapers. You can see it. It fills up physical space. But if somebody's hoarding pictures of cats on the Internet and, <laughs> and also a bunch of news articles um, and emails, you can't see it. It doesn't take up any space. So it's really hard to see somebody walking around with, like, a computer full of this stuff. So you know? cats is a euphemism, right? <laughs> 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 
<laughs> That's one of the terms in the illustrated uh, dictionary of cyborg anthropology. Is, no, no, it's uh, cyber. Or it's digital hoarding. Yeah, I'm looking yeah, for that's one of the, yeah, 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 digital hoarding. So I think I do. I guess we all kind of do that. Well, yeah, definitely. and because we all do it, and it's normal, it's not a big deal. But I would say it's actually quite bad. You know, because it, you you could say like with reasonable certainty, at least on like the scale of disorders, like hoarding is actually like a disorder, right? Compulsive hoarding and saving, but it's so easy to do, and everybody does it. As a culture, we all think, oh, well, it's normal, so it's not a big deal. Because I guess with computers, um, a f- f- 500 gig hard drive mm-hmm. and a 1 gig hard drive look pretty much the same. They weigh the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't... And, it, and as computers develop, as we get more things, we don't clear out our hard drives. We just buy bigger storage. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you just have like these infinite Mary Poppins bags that you can put anything into, and it doesn't get larger or heavier. And so, yeah, so you don't see it. It's invisible. Um, and, but it's still, it's still bad, do you think, even if it's not something that consumes your time and resources, watching those things, even if they're just there. Like, it, it, it makes me happy to know that I have a terabyte external hard drive where I have backed up every single digital picture I've ever taken, every MP3 I own. Like, it's in two places. I, I can just know it's there. I don't spend any time going through it that much, but, like, it's nice to know that I have my entire history photographically sitting somewhere. Right. Is that bad? Am I a bad well, person? Yeah. No, because it's, it's a false sense of security, right? So, yeah. like, my partner, his, he had two hard drives that were backing up each other just fail. So it's like all of it went away, and it was irrestorable, right? But the idea was that the system was set up to be secure, and there was a sense of security there. But even that can fail. So we were talking about how do you actually make sure that the stuff that you have stays around? We are talking about, well, publish it in some way. It's like go to Kinko's. Print, you know, print out a bunch of those photos, put them into like five books and give them to your friends. But then if those five people have house fires, that's like the real world equivalent of a hard drive crash. Right, but right? five people having house fires at the same time is crazy. Like, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you're, pres- you're presuming that all this stuff is meaningful beyond and, a certain level of, of activity with it. I mean, it's right. meaningful because it's easy to get a couple of terabyte drive and keep all that shit together. Right. But it's not the end of the world if you lose it. Right, but it might, I mean, it might be because you're, you're losing part of your history. You're basically, when you're looking at a picture that you've taken, you're not just looking at a picture, you're looking, you're looking at a hyperlink to a memory that's stored in your brain. And if you think of the brain working like you get all these memories and then you go through REM sleep at night and it archives all that stuff like you would in your Gmail account, um, then, you know, when you want to get the memory again, you do a keyword search and up pops the email, right? Up pops the memory when you look at a picture or where you look at a piece of text. So what you're losing when you lose those photos are markers to those memories. And that's why it's really hard to get rid of books, to get rid of stuff in your house because you're, they're, they're symbolic markers for these memories in your past. And that's why it's so painful often to lose things, right? So the idea of publishing is you grab your favorite memory markers and you put them into some sort of physical interface, replicate it a couple times, and then you don't lose it, right? Or you have a less opportunity to lose it. Or you go into, like, a cave and chisel it into stone, because mm. that lasts for a long time, right? But we're really storing stuff in nothing. We're storing stuff in electrical impulses. And if those go away, it goes away, versus storing stuff in, like, actual matter, right? Which goes back to the photo album type thing. I mean, Yeah, but what are uh, the actual memories themselves are just basically digital information in your own physical brain. Precisely. So what's the difference? So then you share it via story or something like that. The thing is, yeah, your hard drive will crash too. Your brain will crash when you die, right? Or some traumatic thing. Or sometime like 
later today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is an open bar at the after party. <laughs> So, yeah, everything is very impermanent, right? So when people started writing things down, they were able to store them outside of themselves. They were able to have them for a long period of time. So we see these cave paintings that have been around for 3,000 years. That is a really good physical backup memory device, right? But we don't have a lot of that anymore. But then also we're making a bunch of stuff really quickly that's not necessarily very meaningful. Right. So, so it, it disappears as, as it's meant to disappear, right? Because if, if something is meaningful and it's accessed by enough people, it will, it will not really disappear. Is there also a risk that now we're producing content in such quantities that it's becoming increasingly difficult to sort the meaningful from the meaningless? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, and that's that's a big issue where we pr- it's so easy to produce, really difficult to curate, and really difficult to print it out and make it tangible. And so you get these things where like a very very good writer will write this very concise condensed experience that you know writing is basically a really nice early form of virtual reality. You read some well written text and you hallucinate that you actually like this person in this book better than your next door neighbor and actually know them more because it's been written so that you can parse it and like write that person's memories into your mind, right? But the issue is, you know, you have all these pictures, you have all these things, and often people don't go through them and create a story out of it or write it down, and so you, you, you get that loss right there. So um, it becomes increasingly important for you know, people to write a summary and, and, and do that. But I think there's probably always going to be the same ratio of people who like create and consume no matter what generation it is of technology. And I think there's always going to be the people that kind of step outside of that and write about it. And that, that writing is the thing that's going to stay around from generation to generation. The thing that we will read that will encapsulate the weird experience that we're having right now that we're so embedded in that we don't really notice. But, you know, somebody's probably writing about it right now, and we won't, we won't want to read it right now. But, you know, in 20 years, we'll be like, wow, that person really encapsulated that experience because we're no longer in that experience, and we can look at it from, from the future. So, so, so we should have computers and chisels, basically. We should, we should not abandon one for I the don't other. think we should ever abandon chisels. Those things are pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so is this very podcast that we're recording, is this something... No, this is going to stay forever. Oh, this is going to be allowed forever. <laughs> this, is, this, my friends, wait, is... Wait. We're going to hire a guy to chisel it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we do have someone... I th- Think, I, I could be wrong, but I think we have someone who paints every one of our podcasts. Oh, yeah. Like right. each of our episodes gets yeah, painted onto the an site. Oil painting. So, so the, uh, the, the the story about um, the the kings and queens in, in the past, you know, the 1500s, 1600s, they would hire these portrait painters, right? Because right. you know you'd want to marry like a prince or a princess would want to get married, but it would be to share resources between kingdoms. So it's like, okay, well, Scotland, England want to do an alliance. Let's see if we can hook these kids up. You know, so they often didn't visit each other. They would have a Oil painting right. commissioned, right. But, that, but those were also mythologies put forth as well. Yeah, so the, the the avatar photo, so to speak, shows up, and oh, that person's very attractive. I think I'll continue writing them these long letters, like yeah. very yeah. early internet, very slow, two so two uh, two megabytes a week or something. So the like flattering that. portrait is the equivalent of the well shot, good angle selfie. Yep. <laughs> And it's, and it's expensive, but it's okay, because it's, it's the equivalent. And so then, yeah, and it just takes a long time for that selfie to develop, and then it gets shipped. And then, you know, they meet each other in real life, they get angry. So there are stories all over <laughs> history of they're like, hey, you look nothing like your portrait painting. This sucks. So that's no different from, like, OkCupid okay yeah. no several hundred years later. No yeah. different from OkCupid, okay except... I'm sorry, when was this painting painted? <laughs> <laughs> That is the angle, so you can't see the shoulders. So you can't. Anyway, um, 
So, so the the idea is that we uh, early on, um, you know, only the royalty had access to that. You know, they they could write, they could write letters back and forth. They had communication. They had pictures. They had they didn't have video, um, but they had a pretty reasonable social network thing going on across countries and things like that. And now. All of us do as the general public. So then the question is, what are you know what are the upper class doing right now? It's like, well, maybe they don't have you know they have the 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 ability not to use technology. They have the ability to still do everything analog. You know, still have somebody like writing their stuff for them, or like still have somebody scheduling all of their things so that they don't have to actually use a computer. Right, so, so being maybe it's the leisure reversed. class in the future will mean having the luxury of not having to be bound to these things that we think of as Precisely. advanced and and high class, but are really the things tying down yeah. everybody. That so, this is just like the you know the general consumptive stuff is you know this is the new television. It's got ten billion channels instead of like forty, and it's all distracting us. And so then there's this whole group of people that don't have to do that, and that's actual freedom. The difference between like having money and being wealthy is being wealthy in time and not having to check these messages so versus not checking having them to all listen the time. to an hourly podcast about <clears throat> comedy and science. <laughs> <laughs> so those people who are really smug about not owning TVs, they're basically the kings of the future. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> uh, except, except a lot of people now who are smug about I don't own a TV. It's like, well, yeah, but you own like seven laptops. And you watch Netflix all the time, right? So yeah. it's like, well, you that's... actually are closer to your television than ever before. In fact, you're right here. And there's a miniature television that's right here, too. And there's one over there that's controlled by, like, your Apple TV. So you've got three televisions. Just none of them yeah. look exactly like an old television. Right. And so people are going to be like, oh, yeah, I don't use a television. It's like, well, do you not use a computer, too? Because that, be, that would be interesting. We're in, we're in Portland. I'm sure there are still some people who are mostly sticking to the typewriter. Yeah, uh, yeah I, 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 I watch a, a lot of shit online that I don't get on my television. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's a difference. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've known a fair number of Portlanders who are very proud of the, the no TV thing. Yeah, it's a little it's a little hypocritical, and also the fact that like all the best stuff is happening on TV these days, like. Better than movies, whatever. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm still with you as far as how we consume too much, but also there's some great shows. Have you guys seen Silicon Valley? So funny. Yeah. Um, they're not a sponsor. But I. But at least, uh, well, a couple of the cast members are or have been at the festival before. So That's true. Oh yeah, Camille Langevin's and they all here. have websites by, <laughs> by Squarespace. Squarespace. <laughs> just get the you just get the wrong sponsor by looking at the banner back there. They all have websites by Sizzle Pie. <laughs> Mailchimp, we'll fling your mail like poo. <laughs> Surprisingly it's a, accurate. It's a, yeah, I like that as a name for her. Like it makes sense. You know, it's like you're sending out you're sending out your monthly email bulletin, and there's not much difference to just being in your own jizzing pool. in your hand yeah. and throwing it at spectators. And, <laughs> and some of it's what like happens it. at the zoo, people. This is life. <laughs> Sorry if that got too real. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if I too often go to the zoo dressed as an attractive female chimp. I told you, can't you handle the cheaper, truth, man. It's cheaper to just rent the female chimp. We've talked about this. If you don't have to. Yes. 
All right, that's probably as good a point as any to, uh, to thank our guests for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. It's been a delight. Uh, where can we see you the rest of this weekend, Paul? Uh, I'll be doing Setlist show, uh, Setlist tonight at 8 o'clock, and tomorrow there's a uh, live green room happening right in this room. Oh, yeah. At, uh, that's one of your many shows that I forgot to mention, the green room, Paul Provenza on, on Showtime. Can you I find am, that online now? Is that more on failed shows than you could ever remember. <laughs> Uh, but uh, go and go and see the set list, uh, which is tonight. Go and see Green Room tomorrow. Go and find uh, Paul online at uh, at Paul Provenza. Uh, yes, at Paul Provenza on Twitter, at Paul Provenza on Facebook, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Elizabeth Soiree on OKCupid. Okay <laughs> <laughs> um, Amber, where can uh, where can our listeners find more about your work and uh, and you? Uh, you could just Google cyborg anthropology, and everything will just show up. <laughs> are you the only? Are you the only cyborg anthropologist? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. I just. I just um... That's when the transformer breaks through the wall. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's just. Uh, um, I, you know, uh, early on, I realized you could do this thing called SEO, and I just kind of oh, okay. was like, oh, I could get to the top in Google, and then I would play pranks on my friends. I'd be like. What if I could get you know like like inglorious bastard to show up for like my friend Jeff or something like that? So I'd like start to do that and be like, hey Jeff, Google yourself. And he'd be like, you suck. <laughs> Put me yeah. in all these crazy search results. Well, we're talking about it. You cyborg kind of anthropologists yeah. are crazy. Well, we are talking about this kind of thing. Um, fuck you, Matt Kirshen, the Israeli lecturer. <laughs> Welcome to page twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag. There's a lot of stuff about comedy online. It's not fair on him at all. There's a lot of interlinked websites about comedy and not Israeli lecturing. Uh, yeah, I was really confused, seriously, when there, I did this. You could be an Israeli lecturer, though. I could, if I put my mind to it. I, I guess I should I just trade places one day. We should, in some wacky <laughs> 80s style. All you have to do is swap passwords. Yeah. <laughs> you could actually be swap each your other. Second yeah, you could. No one would actually notice. Yeah. Yeah, it would be, that'd be a great computer bug. Everybody just gets their di- identity swapped. You don't know who you're talking to anymore. Be a swap with. Is there another Paul Provenza? God, I hope so. <laughs> There's an Andy Wood who's a professional Tom Jones impersonator. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Dude, what are you doing I here? <laughs> Why aren't you out there living that guy's life? Do you ever get emails requesting a booking? Never, but there's a bunch. Yeah, there's an Andy Wood who uh, was lead singer of Mother Love Bone, the late great Andy Wood, uh, the precursor to Pearl Jam, that band. Um, and there is a uh, the guy who got the Twitter handle at Andy Wood is like a youth minister in the Bay Area or something. Fuck That's you. That's more your know. type. Yeah. <laughs> um, Amber Case, thank you so so much for joining us. Um, as all and Paul Provenza, thank you for thank you for having thank me. Thank you for being you. There was there was probably some science in here. There was, there was definitely bit. some science. Yeah. Um, as always, uh, any listeners or anyone. Um, in the audience today as well. Any questions, comments, clarifications, uh, probablyscience at gmail.com. You can tweet us at probablyscience. Write nice things about us on iTunes. It really helps. Give us ratings. That really helps as well. Tell your friends. Subscribe if you're not already subscribing, and we will see you next week. But in the meantime, uh, from me and Andy Wood and from everyone at Bridgetown Comedy Fest, thanks for having us. Thank you, yeah, you guys. guys. Thank you, you guys for, for showing up. We appreciate really it. appreciate it. Thank you again, Paul Provenza and Amber Case. Yes. Enjoy the rest of the Bridgetown Comedy Festival. Festival, Take care, guys.